And welcome back to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we have a very interesting discussion with Jacob Hornberger. But first, let's thank our sponsor, who is Bluehost. The show notes, my website is all on Bluehost. Yours should be too. RyanRaySenior.com slash hosting. RyanRaySR.com slash hosting. Go there. Use my link. When you do, send me a screenshot. I'll run you a free promo ad on this very podcast. Okay. Our guest today caught my attention with his new book, An Encounter with Evil, The Abraham Zapruda Story. And I thought, hmm, we've had on Mel Ayton, and we have some other guests who I've interviewed here recently from the Cold War era. And I wondered... What is the Zapruder story? And we get into that some. We talk about the Kennedy assassination at large. And this is a topic of interesting exploration for me because I, I generally take the um, the narrative of the Warren Commission. At the same time, I generally am very suspect that everything government says, right? So I have these two things. Government says this is what happened. It seems to make sense. But then I also don't really trust everything the government says. So I kind of have these kind of conflicting good angel, bad demon on my shoulders. It makes me curious about people who have looked into this far more than I have. So I've had on Jacob Hornberger, who is the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation, a nonprofit educational foundation whose mission is to present the principal case for libertarian philosophy. Also authored, as I mentioned, the Zapruder book, but then the Kennedy Autopsy. Uh, a second book on the Kennedy, Kennedy autopsy, Regime Change, the JFK Assassination, and the CIA, Terrorism, and the Cold War, The Evil of the National Security State. He also wrote the foreword to CIA and JFK, The Secret Assassination Vials by Jefferson Morley. And that was also published by the Freedom, the Future Freedom Foundation. Um, he's got a ton of articles on JFK assassination on the Future of Freedom Foundation website. You can go check it out. We'll link to all that at fff.org. Uh, we'll link to all that in the show notes. Okay, so more Kennedy stuff coming up, more Cold War stuff coming on. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, I've got some stuff on uh, the presidents um, from this period, from Mel Eaton's book, Protecting the Presidential Candidates. We'll also link to his interviews in the show notes, which you're getting at RyanReSenior.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jacob Hornberger. Jacob, it is lovely to have you on the program today. How are you doing? Fine. It's an honor and pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Okay, can I make a slight confession? Um, I was born in 1985, and for most of my life, the Kennedy stuff did not fascinate me at all. And I'm not sure if the Kennedy stuff fascinates me now or if it's more so that era of history, because it is a fascinating time period where you have Kennedy and the CIA and the, and the, Cold, uh, the Cold War going on. So I am curious, what is your fascination particularly with the Kennedy assassination, is this been kind of a lifelong thing? Because for me, it's more of a, uh, the past few years, I've kind of gotten interested in this era of history. I feel the same way you do. I mean, my, my favorite time of history uh, had always been the New Deal era, the Franklin Roosevelt era, Great Depression and so forth. But that pales now in comparison to the Cold War era. I, I think that's the absolutely most fascinating period in American history. And I got into it because I, I, I'd seen Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. I had, when mm -hmm. I went to see that movie, I had heard nothing about conspiracy theories or anything, believe it or not. I mean, I was 41 years old and I never had known that anybody had questioned the official account of a lone nut assassin. 
So when I went to that movie, I was, and I had read no reviews of the movie. So I thought I was just going to see a biography of Kennedy who I helped campaign for when I was in the fifth grade. And I walked out of there really stunned and, and transfixed by this thesis that this was a national security state assassination and, and the reasons for it. So I started studying it and continue studying it for some 30 years. And I've written some books on it. And it's, it's clear to me that that is a pivotal moment in American history. At some point in time, there sufficient evidence came out several decades after the assassination that this was, in fact, a regime change operation, not a conspiracy theory. And once it crossed that line, I realized that this event has a momentous impact on where we are today with the national security establishment embroiling us in all kinds of conflicts now, renewed Cold War. So people ask me, why do you keep stressing the Kennedy assassination? It happened you know, so many decades ago. Well, there's a real reason for it because it points the way out of the morass in foreign policy and militarism in which we find ourselves today. Okay, and you said you were in fifth grade when you campaigned for Kennedy, is that correct? That's right. So I guess that's the his first time or his second, or when he was getting ready to run for reelection there? No, that was his first time. Okay. And uh, he was running with Johnson. And I actually went to the Linda Johnson ranch with my dad. My dad was active in politics and met Johnson, shook hands with him. Uh, So I stuffed envelopes for John Kennedy at campaign headquarters in my hometown of Laredo, Texas. Okay. And so you would have been in middle school, early high school when the assassination happened then? Yeah, I would. I was in about eighth grade. Okay. And what was that day like? It was a weird day. I mean, like, like the, everybody says, you can always remember where you were on that day, interestingly enough. And I was waiting for the classroom to open for biology class. And a student came up named Becky Uribe and said to me, President Kennedy's been shot and told us all there. And we were all just stunned. I don't remember what happened after that. I think we went ahead and went to class. I don't think they released us from class or anything. But I just remember that moment when she came up and said, President Kennedy's been shot. So obviously for me, 9-11 would be the most comparable thing. I was in, I was a junior in high school and uh, we walk into first period and the teacher at the adjacent room comes in and goes, they hit the Pentagon too. And then my teacher goes, it was a really well thought out attack. And that, and we didn't know, you know, I didn't know what was going on. You know, we're like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? You know, Um, I remember, um, I remember the, the rest of the day, but more importantly, I remember the rest of the week going, oh my gosh, are we about to get an all-out assault on the U.S.? So from your perspective, after Kennedy was assassinated, was there a fear that, hey, we're going to war? Or was it, you know, what was the the view in the days following? Were you concerned about the, the safety of the country? Or do you think, no, 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 this is kind of an isolated event? Uh, it was really considered an isolated event, although this was the height of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis had happened back a year or so before. It was, nobody really gave any consideration as far as I know that this might be the first stage of a nuclear attack. I I think there was just shock and grief and most everybody bought into this notion that this lone nut had killed the president and then immediately gotten assassinated himself. Uh, so it was more of a sense of deep sadness and grief than anything else, as I can recall. Yeah, and I was talking, we had, uh, um, oh gosh, um, uh, Jefferson Morley on the other day, and I was talking to him about just kind of the Kennedy 
era and how it was viewed because obviously obviously it's pre-Watergate. And so how the media covered the presidency, the CIA, the FBI, all that stuff is kind of in this period of of a lot of goodwill from the public, I think, as well. And that's kind of part of what's happened. Whereas post-Watergate, um, everyone's kind of conspiratorial, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just funny that that that's kind of the last era, uh, the Kennedy and Johnson administration, where the official narrative is not widely questioned, it seems. I agree with you that there was a there was a tremendous trust in government. Um, in fact, I don't think anyone after the assassination was suggesting that the national security establishment did this. Uh, even the first generation of researchers, they were all complaining sort of about the government incompetence. The government shouldn't have shut down this investigation. There were other clues, what, what's going on here type thing. But it was a long time before the focus started to turn on the national security establishment, specifically the Pentagon and the CIA. And that was because of the large amount of trust that people had. But because of that assassination, I think the lack of trust began um, as a result of that assassination, that people knew that there were strange things going on here. You know, you've, you've got the Warren Commission, which consists of some of Kennedy's enemies, like, like Dulles. Uh, and then you've got it all shrouded in secrecy. You've got records that are going to be hidden for 50 to 75 years, all because a lone nut supposedly killed the president. And then most significantly, Ryan, they shut down the investigation immediately after Lee R.V. Oswald is assassinated. That's not the way federal officials operate. When somebody kills a federal official, it's like when somebody kills a cop. They pull out all the stops to find out everybody involved. So while people were suspicious, uh, they, I think they lost their trust in government because of that. But it was many, I, I would say some years later before people began suspecting that this could have been a regime change operation. And how much do you think um, you, you have those elements, but, but also, um, you know, the difference between my parents and myself, I can see, whereas, um, you know, they, they're, you know, um, in the early 60s, um, so they can use the internet and, you know, the tech fluid and all that stuff, but they don't view the news, even though they're they're a little bit older than me, they still don't view the news the same way as I do, whereas I'm a little bit more skeptical. Uh, I want to question the official narrative. I'm going to get on Google and kind of read a varying opinions. Um, do you think that kind of going through this time period to where we are now, um, you talk about all of these things, on some level, um, I, th I think it's a good thing to question these narratives, but also I wonder how do we, someone like myself who's a little bit younger watching this stuff, how do you determine what is fact, what is fiction, you know, because you don't want to be 100% um, conspiratorial all the time where you, where you can't function. You, you, so how do, you, how do you balance that out? It takes thinking. It takes analyzing. It takes examining evidence. What concerns me is that all two Americans are what I call deferentials. And this is in large part because of the mindset that's that's inculcated in people in public schools, government schools, the, the mindset of a good little citizen who defers to authority, doesn't question, official accepts official narratives, and thinks that uh, mocks everything as a conspiracy theory. That's their ideal, because then they can get away with everything. But as we know, government does lie. I mean, that we, we saw them lie about at the Gulf of Tonkin soon after Kennedy was assassinated, which justified a ramping up of the Vietnam War, which ended up killing 58,000 of my generation. We've seen the lies with respect to Watergate, the lies with respect to Afghanistan. 
so we know the national security state lies. What it takes is a citizenry that has an analytical mind, a questioning mind. There's nothing wrong with questioning and challenging official narratives. And then based on the evidence, determines what happened. I, I think that's the ideal uh, citizenship for a country. Independent thinkers that are not afraid to challenge the official narratives of the state. Uh, agreed, 100%. And uh, I think the, I always joke that if you look at a poll, it'll say, you know, 10% or 20% of Americans trust uh, like politicians. And I always joke that when people answer that, they're always thinking of the other side, right? They're never thinking of their own guy because, or girl or lady or whatever, because if they actually didn't trust all politicians, you know, or like all politicians, we would view things so much differently. And you can see that over the past, um, you know, the current administration, the previous administration, um, I get, I get chuckled. I get online this morning and there was a right-wing uh, pundit saying, oh, well, the this this is happening, but my sources are saying that that's not true uh, inside the Biden White House. It's like, well, I, I watched you during the, the Trump White House saying that we shouldn't trust anonymous sources because they can't be trusted. But now, now when it's Biden, and I'm not a Biden proponent, of course, but but it's funny how we just we just shift on you know whatever side it is how we feel about these things. And I think that's also a fundamental problem is that we we want to argue that we don't trust the state, but we trust the state when it's our guy. I agree with you. It's like musical chairs that when the Republicans are in office, the Democrats are saying, look at all the things they're doing. And while well, they're doing the same thing that the Republicans were doing, they just weren't complaining about it back then. And then the, the other party gets into power and the same thing happens. The, the, the musical chairs, the chairs shift and people start doing it. It's this same mindset of deference to authority. As I said, the ideal is a citizen that just looks at things independently of the parties, the philosophies, everything, looks at the evidence and, and reaches a conclusion as to what's going on here. Okay, so in context of evidence um, in the Kennedy assassination, you mentioned the Oliver Stone film um, with Kevin Costner, I believe is the, is the star in that one. Um, that kind of got you on this journey. Give us some high level things that led you to the Zapruder book we're gonna talk about, but some high level things that you would say are clear pieces of, of evidence um, for our listeners to entertain, to view the, the assassination as a regime change? All right. Well, I was trained as a lawyer. I got a law degree at the University of Texas. I practiced law for some 12 years before I became president of the Future of Freedom Foundation and, and joined the libertarian movement full time. So I, I analyze things as a lawyer. I, I need to see evidence. Um, so in the early years of the of the Kennedy assassination, early decades really, as I was reviewing this evidence, um, I, I couldn't really see evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that this was a national security state regime change operation. So they, they effectively go from 63 to the 90s after Oliver Stone's movie uh, with a successful secrecy here. They shrouded the whole the whole uh, investigation in secrecy. Uh, they they uh, and they got away with it for thirty years. And in those thirty years, uh, hardly anyone talked. And they um, they they figured well if they could keep it secret long enough and inculcate people with a mindset of oh conspiracy theory, Jacob. Oh conspiracy theory that by the time anything does start to come out, everybody will just be saying oh conspiracy theory, Jacob. So what happened was 
after the Oliver Stone movie came out, they that there Oliver Stone had a little blurb at the end of his movie that said they're keeping their record secret for till the year 2029 or something like this. Well, this produced outrage among the American people that they well, why the secrecy and it, it had implications of cover up based on Oliver Stone's movie. So the public, interestingly enough, pressured Congress to enact the JFK uh, Records Act, which mandated the release of all assassination related records by the Pentagon, the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, everybody, which they fiercely resisted. And then to enforce this, the Assassination Records Review Board came into existence. Well, as I'm studying the literature, I come across a book called Best Evidence by David Lifton, a fantastic book, which implies that there's anomalies, even fraud, associated with the autopsy that was conducted on President Kennedy's body. Now, there, if there's any fact that's undis indisputable in the Kennedy assassination, it is that the US military conducted the autopsy. And it was done in total secrecy. They made the personnel that participated in it signed secrecy oaths, written secrecy oaths. They were threatened with criminal prosecution if they ever talked about what they had seen. And that secrecy lasted all the way up to about the mid seventies when the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations reopened the assassination and released some of these people from their vows of secrecy. Well, some of them started talking and saying, we brought the president's body into the Bethesda morgue in Maryland at 6.35 PM which was an hour and a half earlier than the official 8 p.m. of entry time into the morgue. So this is like really weird. Well, in, in the 1990s, the Assassination Records Review Board discovers the existence of a man named Roger Boygen. He was a Marine sergeant on the night of the assassination. He tells the ARRB that his team carried the president's body in a cheap aluminum shipping casket into the Bethesda morgue, which matched the witnesses that said, we brought it in in this aluminum casket at 635. Well, President Kennedy's body had been placed in a big, heavy, ornate casket in Dallas, and again, was being brought into the morgue at 8 p.m. Well, I'm reading this 10 years after the 1990s in a book by Douglas Horn called Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. And Horn served on the ARRB, and he put it all together. This five-volume work put the whole thing together with respect to fraud and the autopsy. And there's no question. Once I read that as a lawyer, I, I realized that, that Horn had established beyond a reasonable doubt that this autopsy was fraudulent. Let me give you another example. The ARRB uncovered a woman named Sandra Spencer. She was a Navy petty officer. She worked in the White House lab photographic laboratory. She developed photographs for President Kennedy. You would never find a more credible witness than Sandra Spencer. She tells the IRRB a remarkable story. She says on the weekend of the assassination, she was asked to develop the official autopsy photographs of President Kennedy. She had not talked about it for 30 years. It was classified. Every soldier knows what classified means. The ARB released her from her vow of secrecy. They show her the autopsy photographs, especially the ones showing the back of Kennedy's head to be intact. Sandra Spencer looks at those photographs and say no, and said, no, that's, those are not the photographs I developed. The photographs I developed showed a massive 
wound hole in the back of Kennedy's head. Well, that means that those photographs, if what she's saying is true and correct, have to be fraudulent. There's no way around it. The interesting part is that her testimony matched what the Dallas physicians and other witnesses said in Dallas. Dr. Robert McClellan, he was in trauma room one. He, for the rest of his life, he said, President Kennedy had a massive exercise hole in the back of the occipital region of his head. Every other doctor in there at the time, immediately after the assassination, corroborated that. I've got all the, te- all the statements in my new book uh, called An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zabruder story. Also, the nurses, nurses Diane Bowron, uh, Audrey Bell, a newsman outside uh, Parkland Hospital in Dallas said, yeah, I saw the hole. Clint Hill, the Secret Service agent who jumped on the back of Kennedy's limousine, he was lying on top of Kennedy for the four or five minutes to the hospital. He saw the hole. He was staring at it. And um, two, C- two FBI agents, uh, Silbert and O'Neill in Bethesda, they, when they were, the ARRB showed them the official autopsy photograph showing the back of Kennedy's head to be intact. One of them said, no, that's been doctored. There was a hole there. And the other one said there was a hole there. So when you add this up, Ryan, I come to the conclusion this is a fraudulent autopsy. Now, why is that important? That's beyond a reasonable doubt now, but it takes 40 years to establish that. 40 years. By this time, the mainstream press is co-opted or scared to death of the Pentagon. They don't want to address it. And But that's where we are now. That's the state of the evidence. So I wrote a book called The, the Kennedy Autopsy, which is our bestseller at the Future of Freedom Foundation. It's essentially an easy-to-read synopsis of Horn's five-volume book, which is very difficult to to get through. It's a long book, very complicated, very detailed. Uh, But once, why is this important? One simple reason, there is no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy, none. No one has ever come up with one. No one will ever come up with one. It necessarily implies criminal culpability in the assassination. So once you conclude that there was a fraudulent autopsy, which I've concluded given the, the state of the evidence, then you necessarily conclude that this was a national security state assassination. Okay, so how does Zapruder and why a book on Zapruder? Because obviously we've, we've seen the film, we've watched the film, we've watched the analysis of the film, everyone's seen the Zapruder film. It, it's probably the most uh, famous film in the history of mankind. Like it's, it's up there. Um, so you have the autopsy evidence, but why is Zapruder book? Okay, well, that's, that's the fascinating question. Because you see, once you reach the conclusion that the autopsy photographs are fraudulent and that they falsely depict the back of President Kennedy's head, you run smack, right smack dab into the Zabruder film. Because the Zabruder film, after Kennedy receives this headshot in frame 313, and and he proceeds down the uh, Elm Street, the film shows the back of Kennedy's head to be intact. In other words, it matches what the military's autopsy photographs are. So people who would defend the official narrative would say, oh, all those people just imagined that wound. They had to have imagined the wound. The photograph has to be authentic because the film shows the back of the head to be intact. Well, the, the, those of us that concluded that the it's the military that's lying here that they've concocted these photographs because all the all these witnesses 
certainly could not have entered into a conspiracy with each other to pin the crime on the assassination. And it's impossible to believe that they all independently imagined a wound. We kept, we were convinced that that film had to have been altered too. But for 30 to 40 years, there's no evidence of that. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me cut in real quick, make sure uh, I'm following along. So what you're arguing right now is there's two pieces of evidence. One is the, the Pruder film, which does not show a hole in the back of Kennedy's head. And the other piece is you have uh, multiple eyewitnesses who it's very unlikely or almost impossible for them to collaborate and to come up with a story that says there was a massive hole in Kennedy's head. And so you have contradictory evidence that you're trying to, uh, that, you're, that you're saying that, that can't be res resolved. It, it, it's two polar opposites. Is that correct? Exactly. That, okay. that, that describes it perfectly. How do you get around this? That you're saying the photograph is fraudulent, but what about the film then? Because okay. you see, here's what happens with the film. Um, Abraham Zabruder, Dallas businessman, home um, movie maker. I mean, this guy was about as good an amateur filmmaker as you'd ever find. He'd been making home movies for about 30 years. He's got a top of the line Bell and Howe movie camera. He goes out to Dealey Plaza to film the president who deep, he deeply admired. He captures the assassination on film, 26 second film. He immediately realized he's got something valuable. And so he plans on selling it. He's going to get top dollar for this film. It's determined. So he goes and, and he gets it developed. He gets three copies made. He's very careful that there are no unauthorized copies because he didn't want it out there circulating. It would reduce the value of his film. He negotiates with Life Magazine on Saturday morning for the sale of print rights, $50,000, uh, which is the equivalent of about $300,000 today in today's dollars. They strike a deal. He gives the original film to, to Dick Stoley of Life Magazine on Saturday. Uh, so Saturday afternoon, Stoley has the film flown to Chicago, which is where Life's printing presses are located. The official narrative was that the film was then, uh, they took pictures of it. They put the pictures in the November 29th issue of Life Magazine, exactly one week after the November 22nd assassination. Oddly enough, they were all black and white, muddy pictures. The film was in color. But in any event, that's where the official narrative stood for 30 years. Uh, that, was, that was what life was maintaining. That's what the, the uh, federal officials were maintaining. The only ones who could alter this film in a fraudulent way were in Hollywood. Hollywood could do it. But there was never any evidence that the film was flown to Hollywood or that Hollywood experts flew into Chicago. So those people who were claiming fraud in the autopsy were stymied. It's like, where do we go from here? We can't prove that the film was fraudulent. And then the dam broke and people were able to figure out what happened. But by the time they figured out what happened, and all this is detailed in my book, uh, An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zabruder story, it was like three or four decades later, the mainstream press didn't care anymore. The secrecy had worked. People were inculcated with this notion of a conspiracy theory, Jacob, conspiracy theory. They didn't want to know what happened here. Well, this is what happened. Douglas Horn um, has a friend named Peter Janney, and they actually made friends because of this episode. Janney is the author of a great book called Mary's Mosaic. Janney's father had served in the CIA as a high officer in the CIA. Well, Janney learns of the existence of a guy named Dino Brugioni, who was a CIA photographic expert 
at the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington on the weekend of the assassination. This guy was hot stuff. You can Google Dino Brugioni. Wikipedia says that he is the world, he was the world's renowned expert on photographic interpretation, even after retirement. Uh, he was second in command here at the at the at nitpick, as it was called. And so Janney says to, to Dino, well, my dad was in the uh, in the CIA. And he goes, oh, I knew your dad. We were good friends. Why don't you come out and we'll visit? So Janney goes out and visits. And lo and behold, during that visit, uh, which Janney recorded and had uh, or at least he had several recordings of later interviews with with uh, with Brugioni. And then Horn did a videotape uh, interview with Brugioni. And I've got excerpts from that that have never been before published in my book. Brugioni tells uh, Janney a remarkable story. He says, I dealt with the Zabruder film on the weekend of the assassination. And he says, on Saturday night, I got a call to report down to nitpick. He was the duty officer in charge that week, weekend. And he says, my job was to meet a secret, two secret service agents who brought in this film, which was the Zabruder film. It wasn't known as the Zabruder film then, but it was the Zabruder film. And his job was to make uh, enlargements of frames and put them on briefing boards for unknown officials. And so he did that. The two Secret Service agents take the film away after, after these photographs are done, enlargements are done. Where do they go? Well, that piece of the puzzle was filled in with a deposition that the ARRB conducted of a man named Homer McMahon. McMahon testifies that on he that he was an official at Nitpick also. He worked there with Dino Brugioni. And on Sunday night, he was summoned to go to Nitpick uh, to meet a Secret Service agent to do photo enlargements of the Zabruder film and briefing boards. In other words, he was being asked to do the exact same thing as Dino Brugioni's team, but it was totally compartmentalized. Brugioni never knew about the Sunday night operation, and he should have known. In fact, when he learned about it during this period with, with Janney and Horn, he was shocked. He said, that's impossible. I was the duty officer in charge. I would have known about this, but they kept it secret from him. Same with the Sunday night operation, totally secret. Well, the Secret Service agent tells McMahon according to McMahon's testimony before the ARRB, I've just come from Hawkeye Works with this film. Now, what's Hawkeye Works? Well, nobody knew about Hawkeye Works, at least not in the public. It, 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 it should not have come out in McMahon's deposition. He really should not have disclosed that, but he did. Well, it turns out that Hawkeye Works is, was a top secret, top level photographic center that the CIA had at Kodak's research and development headquarters in Rochester, New York. According to Brugioni, they could do anything at Hawkeye Works. In other words, anything Hollywood could do, they could do at Hawkeye Works. So as we put these pieces together, we now realize that the film goes from Dallas to Chicago, from Chicago to Washington, from Washington to uh, Rochester, and then comes back, but as a 16 millimeter film. Now, why is that important? This was an eight millimeter film. Now, what does that mean? It was called a double eight film, Ryan. So in, in Dallas, it starts out in the camera as a 16 millimeter film. It, it films on one side of a strip. 
it, when it finishes that side, you turn it over, you put it back inside, it films on the other side. When you go to develop it, you, you develop the film and then you slit it down the middle and connect the two ends. So the 16 millimeter film has now become a, an eight millimeter film. You connect the two ends, instead of a 25 foot 16 millimeter film, you've got a 50 foot eight millimeter film. There is no question, but that the film was slit down the middle. The Kodak people said it, uh, uh, what's his name? Zabruder uh, um, um, uh, shows Dick Stoley of Life Magazine, the film on his eight millimeter home projector on Saturday morning. He shows a copy of his film on uh, the, the following week on eight millimeter. Well, suddenly this film comes in on Sunday as a 16 millimeter. That's impossible. You, you cannot connect, reconnect an eight millimeter film. Once it's slit, it can never be put back together. The only way you can do that is by making a copy. And, and that's essentially what they did. They flew it to Rochester. They made a copy. They altered the copy by putting a black patch on the back of the President Kennedy's head, deleted specific frames, bring it back as a 16 millimeter, slid it down the middle, and that's the film you see on the internet and JFK the movie. That's the altered film. And so now you've got the millet. Oh, let me add this. Dino Brugioni is shown the film, the Zabruder film by Doug Horn. And this is all in the interview with him, the video interview. Doug, I mean, Dino Brugioni, the world's renowned photographic expert says, no, 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 no. That is not the film I developed. The film I developed showed a massive spew of brain and blood tissue shooting upward, which matched the testimony and the statements of other witnesses. He says that one there doesn't show that. He says that that film is different from the film that I saw. Uh, and so that's how we know that we've got a fraudulent autopsy. We got a fraudulent film. All this adds up beyond any reasonable doubt whatsoever that this was a national security state regime change operation. Okay. So I know we're up against the clock. Do you have a few more minutes or do you need to go? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm fine. Okay. Um, so if you're listening to this, you go, okay. Let's, let's assume I'm, I'm not the expert here. I'm, I'm trying to follow along. Why the leap from a doctored photo um, or doctored video, let's just assume all that's true, to a national regime change? Because you don't necessarily have to have that. You can have a cover-up for a lot of reasons. Maybe, they, maybe as we mentioned earlier, um, if you question the state, uh, the, the problem that I have is when you question the state, it's also hard to assign the state motivations because if they are liars, they can lie for all kinds of reasons, not necessarily the ones that you'd want to ascribe to them. So why the... Why is it that <clears throat> if you take the connection of, hey, they doctor these photos, they doctor this video, okay, cool. Why does that necessarily lead to it has to be a regime change operation instead of some other reason? Because there's no innocent explanation for this fraud. I mean, th this is obviously covering up particular wounds. Who would they be covering up for? I mean, uh, the, the Russians, they hated the Russians. They hated the Russians more than they hate them now. Uh, the mafia? Why are they going to cover up for the mafia when the mafia kills a president? Now, sure, they were partnering with the mafia to assassinate Fidel Castro, the CIA was, but there's no possibility that the CIA would ever give a pass to the mafia and say, oh, well, we're, we're going to give you a pass. 
especially since the autopsies just a few hours after the assassination. This is a fraudulent autopsy is not something that you come up with on the spur of the moment. It's not say, hey, guys, let's have a fraudulent autopsy tonight. We haven't had one for a president in a long time. Hey, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. What? I mean, why would you go through a fraudulent autopsy? The fact that it took place just a few hours of, after the assassination necessarily means that it was pre-planned. Uh, and if we go back to Dallas, for example, the um, and see how, how all this came about, under Texas law, Texas law required an autopsy to be done by the Dallas County Medical Examiner. This was a straight murder case under state, under state law. There was no federal jurisdiction whatsoever. It wasn't a federal crime to assassinate the president. The Dallas County Medical Examiner, Dr. Earl Rose, highly competent, very renowned, announces, I'm going to conduct this autopsy. Immediately, a team of Secret Service agents goes into action, uh, headed by a man named Roy Kellerman. They say, we're operating under orders, and you're not going to conduct this autopsy. We're not going to let you. And, and Rose stands his ground and says, this is state law. I'm going to conduct this autopsy. They brandished guns. Thompson was carrying a Thompson submachine, I mean, Kellerman was carrying a Thompson submachine gun. They pulled their jackets back, brandishing their pistols, and they said, we're taking this body back to Washington. We're operating under orders. And they began screaming, yelling, uh, profanity. People in the hospital there said they were terrified. And what was their job? To get the casket to Air Force One at Love Field, where Johnson was dutifully waiting for it. He knew it was coming, which means he had to have been the one to issue the order, either directly or indirectly. They put the body there. They take it to Bethesda. Now, they, they take it to Andrews Air Force Base. Now, there's a lot of competent pathologists that can do autopsies in Washington and Maryland. I, I would be willing to bet you probably have the highest concentration of competent pathologists in that area. Instead, Johnson delivers it to the military. Why the military? This isn't a military nation. We're not at war. Uh, well, because the military has a culture of secrecy. They could shroud it in secrecy. Nobody's going to interfere with that secrecy. You can classify it top secret. And there is a, a deference to authority following orders, obedience to orders in the military. So military men are going to follow orders blindly in the military. So when you add all that up, it's clear that there is no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy. It has to be part of a cover-up. And the only one they could be covering up for is themselves, because they're not going to be covering up for the mafia. They're not going to be covering up for the Russians. They're not going to be covering up for Lee Harvey Oswald or any of Lee Harvey Oswald's friends. They're only going to be covering up for themselves. That's how we know that this was a national security state regime change operation, by virtue of the fraudulent autopsy and the fraudulent film. Okay. All right. So where can people find the book? Because you've covered a lot of ground. Obviously, you've got multiple books on this. So where's the best place to push people that want to find out more? They, you know, you've covered, <laughs> I've got a list of names over here that you hit on. People need to go read the book to uh, unpack all this because you, it's one of the things when you talk to experts, they know so much that they start spouting off stuff like, oh, okay, here's a name. Oh, here's a name. So where do we want to send people to buy the book at? The, the best, uh, I mean, I really... I feel good about how I put everything together in my, my newest book, uh, An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zabruder story, because there's also a mystery built into this uh, that, that we haven't delved into today that the book revolves around. And then my our best-selling book is The Kennedy Autopsy, and then I followed that up with The Kennedy Autopsy 2. And in my, my newest book, uh, An Encounter with Evil, I have a list of recommended books 
and videos for people to watch, especially a conference that we held about a year ago at the Future of Freedom Foundation that I think is the best conference on the Kennedy assassination that's ever been held. Got some fantastic presentations by people that really know what they're talking about, especially Doug Horn. I also would recommend a book on a subject that we haven't dealt with today, and that was motive. Why did they feel the need to assassinate Kennedy? And that is encapsulated in a book that we've published at FFF called uh, JFK's War with the National Security Establishment, Why Kennedy Was Assassinated, that was written by Douglas Horn, who I previously mentioned served on the ARRB. So the website, they can find our books at our website also at FFF.org, but also at Amazon. Okay, yeah, and we and, and real quick because um, yeah, I do want you to unpack the, the the what got you interested in the Zapruder book, the 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 kind of quest there because it is it is interesting. But um, there's there's so much to unpack with this Kennedy stuff that you it's hard to stay literally uh, literally focused on this. So unpack in thirty seconds the the thesis. I've heard you talk about it. And it's quite interesting. Well, I discovered a book called 26 Seconds, A Personal History of the Zabruder Film by Abraham Zabruder's granddaughter, Alexandra Zabruder, last summer, a year ago. And she provided some fascinating revelations, like a there was a taboo within the family against discussing the film for 50 years or so, 40 or 50 years. And she didn't call it a taboo. She says it was a culture code. And then she gave two ridiculous reasons for this taboo. Well, I'm sitting there as a lawyer saying, you know what? there's more to this taboo than meets the eye. Behind every family taboo, almost always, there's a dark secret. And she acknowledges this when she starts to, to break the taboo and starts to investigate and write her book. And, I'm, and I commend her for that. And in my book, I say, well, she showed a lot of courage because there's some dark secrets here. Well, she then, she, but she fails in her task, in my opinion. She, she comes up with two ludicrous explanations for the taboo. So I said, you know what? I'm going to figure out what this is. What's the mystery here of this dark family taboo? And I did. I figured it out because I'd studied this case for so many years. And that's what my book revolves around is the roots of this family taboo within the Zabruder family against discussing this film. And you unpack uh, that, you unpack all of this, all the players, the people, the the quest, the journey, uh, the covert ops and all that in the book. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. We will link to that uh, FFF.org, right? Yes, FFF.org. FFF.org in the show notes. So listeners can go check that out. Uh, would love to get you on again in the future. This is such a, it's such an interesting period. And every time I talk to, we've had on, oh gosh, a handful of guests now that have, that all have differing opinions. And, you know, we had on um, Marty Peterson from uh, the author of The Widow Spy. And she was a, a CIA agent in, um, I, I enjoyed the book, enjoyed the enjoyed the interview. But at the end, I said, what's the biggest misconception that people have about the CIA? And she's like, well, we don't coerce. We don't bribe. We don't do stuff like this. And I was like, well, OK, OK, I love you, Marty. I love you. But you shouldn't have went with that line. Like a lot of lines you should have went with. Not that one, because all the CIA books detail CIA agents doing this. And so uh, maybe I didn't get what she was getting at. But I, I found that kind of to be uh a little comical. So anyways, we will link to the book. People go check it out. And uh, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Ryan.